Sandoval wanted us to read all the names of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. But we had a better idea. We thought it would be more fun for us to sing all of the names in the genealogy of Matthew 1. Yeah, see, we like that. You like it now, you can pray for us when we get there. So there's a lot of names, but we all know that we retain more when we hear scripture in a song. And there was one car trip that I listened to the song over and over, and I had the whole thing memorized. And I don't know how much it, it contributed to the growth of my faith, but I knew that, I knew, I knew these words. So we bring you this creative song by Andrew Peterson. It's called Matthew's Begats. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah in his skin. Then Perez and Sarah came from Judah's woman Tamar, Perez he had his run up and then came. Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. The Solomon, well, you know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Azah. Azah had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Uriah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. Not really, but it rhymes. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiad, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azar, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliathan. reason why actually there was a greater reason why we had to sing it and there was a great thank you there was a greater reason why I didn't want to read it uh, I would never be able to get through those names so I'm grateful for the people that the Lord has given us their giftings abilities and I'm grateful that we get to sing the word of God amen everybody we give him glory again so good morning familia 
My name is Hannibal Rodriguez. For those of you who don't know who I am, and I want to welcome you all again, whether you are worshiping in person or worshiping with us online. Uh, we are grateful that you're here. If you're visiting for the first time, um, I just want to let you know that we, we want to get to know you. So if there's anything that we can do for you, please let us know. Reach to any of us, pastors, staff, ushers, anybody that you, that you, that, that you think they, they, they are part of the church. And then we'll help you in whatever way we can. Today, it's a privilege for me to start this series based on the Gospel of Matthew, in which the intent is basically one and one alone. We want to get to know Jesus more. We want to be shaped by Jesus more. We want to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he came to accomplish more. And what better way for us to do that than to go through one of his biographies? The title of this series is The King and His Kingdom, um, and part of the reason why we chose that title is because one thing that the Gospel of Matthew makes clear is that he wants us to see Jesus as king that came to establish his kingdom and to save people for his kingdom. Now, if you know Jesus, this series is for you. If you want to hear more about Jesus, this series is for you. If you have questions about Jesus, this series is for you. If you are exploring Jesus, this series is for you. If you're not even sure if you believe in Jesus, this series is for you. My invitation to all of us, regardless of where you are in your relationship with the Lord, my invitation is that you allow the Gospel of Matthew to speak into your heart and answer your questions. Let's see what the Lord could do at the end of 70 weeks, which is more or less how long it's going to take us to finish this gospel. Uh, so if you bought your journal, you could go to page 10. That's where you have the scripture for today. Um, and, and the text that we read today, that we actually sang today, uh, is, a, is, is a text that sets the tone for the entire letter. Actually, I want to argue that what we sang today, what we're reading today, sets the tone for the entire New Testament. I want to argue that what we're going to see in the genealogy of Jesus functions almost like a resume. So, see, this is part of why resumes are important. Whenever you see a resume, it's almost like an intro to the person you're trying to get to know. That resume gives you an, a general understanding of this person's background. And based on that, what you see in that resume, you decide whether or not you want to get to know that person or not. This is part of the reason why in our modern day, resumes are extremely important. People make judgments about you based on that resume. People make decisions about you based on that resume. This is also part of the reason why so many people lie in their resumes. So if there's something ugly about you that you don't want anybody else to know, you would not include that in your resume. Why would you? Um, and this is also part of the reason why people tend to modify, sometimes exaggerate, their resumes. Right? Once again, you want to put something there that will be appealing enough for someone to find you interesting. As I was writing this, I remember my first year of college, right after high school, one of my friends got me a job working, and the title was 
truck washer. So basically what I did is I did that. I washed trucks, right? The only skill that it was required for me to do that job was to know how to handle water and soap. Super simple. But I did that for a few months, and when it was time for me to get a better job, uh, I knew that I, I couldn't put that title down. You know, it just didn't make any sense, but I needed to prove that I had been working for a while. So I changed the title from um, truck washer to truck detail operator. <laughs> I, I wasn't lying, you know. The problem is that when the person would ask me, like, okay, but what is it that you did? Yeah, I washed the trucks. <laughs> so it didn't work. What I find amazing, though, is that when we look at Jesus' resume, if you will, he is unapologetically clear about who he is, and he does not leave anyone or anything out of it. He does not modify anything. So from Matthew chapter 1, from verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we're going to get a, an intro of a picture of this King Jesus we're going to be learning for about 70 weeks. And there are five things that I want you to see from that text today. That Jesus is the king of the, good, the new beginnings. That Jesus is the king of the good news. That Jesus is the king of faithfulness. That Jesus is the king, the king who is not ashamed. And that Jesus is the king of peace. Beginnings, new beginnings, good news, faithfulness, not ashamed, and the king of peace. Let's go with the first one. The king of new beginnings. Before we do that, though, I need you to do me a favor. you got to look at the person next to you and say, you need this. Go ahead, go ahead. And then you respond, no, 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 you need this. <laughs> All right, point number one, the king of the new beginnings. I want to start, start with this. Um, when you look at the story of Christianity and when you look at the word of God, you probably already know that the last time God spoke prior to the New Testament was in the book of Malachi 400 years before Jesus' arrival. Meaning that for 400 years, God did not speak through any prophet. For 400 years, God was completely silent. But one of the last things God said through the prophet before stop speaking is that one day there will be a day of judgment. The text calls it the great day of the Lord. And the prophet called God's people to come back to God and obey his commandments. That was the last thing that the prophet said before Matthew happens. So imagine God's people for 400 years waiting for the Lord to do something or to say something. The most logical assumption we could make is that during 400 years, God's people are thinking that God had already given up on them. That is the context of Matthew chapter 1. And the first thing God's people hear from God is what we just read here, or what we just sang this morning, in the genealogy of Jesus. So, for example, in Matthew 1, chapter 1, it starts like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now, I'm going to explain what genealogy is there for a second, but be, uh, in a second. But before that, it's important that, I, that you see that when he talks about Jesus, one of the first things he says, Matthew says, is that Jesus come from David King. That Jesus, because of that, is king by nature. That he is royal blood. Now, why would that be important right from the beginning of this study? It's because whenever Matthew describes Jesus as king, he is making sure that we don't see Jesus just as our body or our friend or our partner in life or our counselor or our miracle maker. Right from the beginning, the Gospel of Matthew wants to see Jesus as our king, God king. And if Jesus is king, then he is the ultimate ruler, the ultimate authority. He is supreme. He is worthy of admiration. He is worthy of submission. He is worthy of obedience and respect. He's not just your friend. He is your king. But the second thing we see there, it has to do with the word genealogy, which is an important word because in the original, that word can be translated as Genesis. Or the new beginning. Meaning that when Jesus comes, when he becomes a human being, not only God is continuing the, the redemption story that is started in the Old Testament, but that with Jesus we have a new beginning. God is doing something new. He is starting something new. That with Jesus there is the genesis of a new era. With Jesus as the center of everything. If that is true, and I believe it is because the Bible says it is, then, then, then there has to be a few implications here. Listen up, church. If the Gospel of Matthew starts with this understanding that all this book is about Jesus and he's at the center of everything, then not only as we read the, the Gospel of Matthew, but the entire Bible, you would know that the entire New Testament, you have to realize that that story is not about you or me. It's about him. And that if that is true, what we need, what we crave for, does not come just by us knowing that Jesus can give us those things. But everything that we're seeking for, everything that we long for, is found in him. Can you see the difference between those two things? There's one thing to want Jesus and the things that Jesus gives. And there's another thing to want Jesus as a person. And what the Gospel of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament is going to argue. Is that what you want, what you need, is not just what Jesus gives. Not just his peace and joy not just his healing and power. What you crave for is him. And we only grow when we embrace him. There's another implication. That if you are a believer, or you become a believer, the moment you accepted Jesus into your heart, the more Jesus came and redeemed your mind and soul and heart, you are a brand new person. Like, really, you are not the same person because Jesus is the king of a new beginning. Because Jesus is the king of a new era, a new genesis. You are not the same person. You're still struggling with a ton of stuff. 
Maybe you're still carrying things that you had before, but at the end of the day, you are a new person, and the way you change is when you believe and embrace the new person that you already are in Jesus. You're not a slave to your sins. You are a new person. You're not a slave to condemnation. You are a new person. Because when Jesus comes, he comes as the king of new beginnings. Number two. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 shows us that Jesus is the king of good news. Did you notice that right in the intro, in verse 1, he talks about Jesus as Messiah. Actually, in the whole section, he calls Jesus the Messiah three times. In verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. In verse 16, he says, Jesus is called the Messiah, and the last word from the, gene the genealogy is that he is the Messiah. Now, if you're not familiar with those names, the name Jesus and Messiah and those names together, it simply means this. That Jesus is the chosen one, the anointed one, with a special call from the Father, and it is to save God's people. To save people, God's people, people from the power of sin, the penalty or the consequence of sin, and eventually from the presence of sin. That's why the New Testament calls this the gospel. Actually, the New Testament calls it the good news of the gospel. Now, in modern days, people confuse the term good news of the gospel with the good advice of the gospel. Tim Keller actually makes a really clear distinction, and he says the Bible knows everything about the good news, knows nothing about the good advice. This is the distinction he makes. He says, advice is counsel about what you must do. News is about, it's a, it's a report about what he already has done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something has already happened. And you just respond to it. Advice says it is up to you. News says it has already been accomplished. You know what's interesting about this? Jesus hasn't gone to the cross just yet. This is the intro. And the Gospel of Matthew is already letting us know that Jesus came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Right at the intro, it tells you that Jesus came to save you because you cannot save yourself. Right in the intro, he tells you that Jesus came to purchase, earn your salvation, live the life that you have not lived, die the day that you deserve to die because you couldn't do it by yourself. Right from the intro, the Gospel of Matthew tells you, if there is no Jesus, you have nothing impossible for you to earn your salvation. So, in 2016, in the Olympics of 2016, there was a major story, because it was a story about these two brothers that were competing in a triathlon. Their names were Johnny and Alistair Brownlee. I don't know if you heard of them. Johnny is the younger brother. And these two guys are amazing in what they do. The younger brother has been running, is in first place, and has been running for one hour and 47 minutes. The older brother is in third place, but he is completely sure that he's going to end up the race in second place. 
But right at the end of the race, the younger brother starts to feel weak. You know, his body overheated and his legs are, are giving out. And yards away, like literally yards away uh, from the, the finish line, he starts to fall apart. And someone that is in the sun lines just comes to him and is carrying him, basically. But his brother that is in third place runs to him, lets the other guy go first, and carry his, brothers, his brother all the way to the, to the finish line. This is the crazy thing, though, that right before they cross the, f- the finish line, the older brother pushes the younger brother over the line. That's a crazy story. So you got the guy that is taking advantage that these guys are doing something else. You got the younger brother almost dying, passing the line, and then you got the hero in third place. So this is the thing in that story. The older brother lost so his younger brother could win. Doesn't that remind you of the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus came to do, but much better and much bigger? Because our older brother not only came to carry us, and not only went to the cross and pushed you over the line, But he didn't lose. He died. Can you see why we need the gospel of Matthew? Because we need to remember that Jesus came to do what we could not do by ourselves. Jesus is the king of the good news, not just the good advice. The Gospel of Matthew also also shows us that Jesus is the king of faithfulness. Now, did you notice that in the the genealogy, the first person, person that is mentioned there is Abraham. And then he finishes the whole genealogy with Joseph and Mary as the human parents of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. In verse 16, then he says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now you have to ask the question, why does God start with Abraham? Why is it that he is not starting with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 2? Why is it that he mentions Abraham? Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you might remember Genesis chapter 12, the first book of the Bible. And you might remember that God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation. That God would bless him so he could be a blessing to the world, to the nations. So in Genesis chapter 12, God gives this cosmic vision to a broken man. God paints this amazing picture of what he wants to do through a broken man. That happened more or less 1,700 years prior to Jesus' arrival. 18 centuries, centuries prior to Jesus being born. Why does that matter? Well, if you know anything about the story of the Israelites... I'm sure you could tell that their story and our story is very similar. I'm sure you know 
that the Israelites never or had a really hard time keeping the promises they had made to God. I'm sure you heard at least that generation after generation, they all struggled trusting and obeying God. 1,700 years. I'm sure you heard that the sin of the parents were being repeated by the children over and over again, generation after generation. And even though the Bible, the Old Testament shows us that there's always a small group of people, a remnant, the Bible says, that would remain faithful for the most part, all people struggle with trusting, loving, and obeying their God. Have you ever heard of that? So most scholars agree in saying that this genealogy covers the entire Old Testament. So you got all these people as a summary of the entire Old Testament, from Abraham to David, from David to Babylon, from Babylon to Jesus. What I find beautiful about that, though, is that if we know the background, we know that the reason why Jesus arrived was not because his people was faithful. One of the beautiful things about this genealogy is that tells you that we are all here today not because God's people are faithful. The beautiful thing about this genealogy is that it tells us that we are here today 3,700 years after Abraham because God was faithful. Generation after generation, he remained faithful. Generation after generation, his steadfast love never went away. And the beauty of this thing is, is that he tells us that that promise that God made to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promise made to Abraham 1,700 years before Jesus was fulfilled in Jesus. And because he was fulfilled in Jesus, we are here today. It is not because God has been, uh, God's people has been faithful. It's because he's always been faithful. It is because when God makes a promise, he never changes his mind. It is because his promises are unbreakable. It is because his presence is permanent. It is because his character is unchangeable. It is because his heart is reliable. It is because his covenant love is unconditional. It is because his grace is dependable. It is because his commitments are unmovable. And it is because his plans are indestructible. He is faithful. And therefore he gave us a faithful king. If that is true, and I believe the Bible says it is, then we know that if we have, we have placed our faith in him, he will remain faithful even when we are unfaithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If that is true, then that also means that whatever our king starts, he will finish. That will be Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. If that is true, that he accomplishes his promises then we don't need to fear because our king will never walk away. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. And if that is true, and God is faithful, 
and King Jesus is faithful, he is always trustworthy. And that is hard to believe. How many of you guys think that God is trustworthy? Could you please raise your hand? Sometimes you believe that. Sinclair Ferguson, which is a Scottish theologian, um, he says that sometimes we see God like this father that takes his kid to the toy store. And he shows his kid all these toys that he could have. And then he pictures this father saying to the kid, you like all of this? And the kid says, yeah, I love it. And then he says, but then we picture God like a father that says to that kid, you can't have any of those toys. So he answers, he asks the question, where do we get that from? Where does this doubt about the trustworthiness of God come from? Well, the argument is that this comes from Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world. You remember that? So in Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam and Eve, you have 20 million trees for you. You have one that you are not to take. Trust me on that. There's no reasoning, no explanation. It's just trust me. There is a reason why you cannot touch or eat from this tree. What does the devil do? He comes in and says, did he really say that? Is he trustworthy? I'm paraphrasing my interpretation. The devil says, it seems to me like if God wants to keep you from something good. And they ate. And from that moment on, all of us, every now and then, have issues trusting the God that says, do this or don't do that. And Jesus comes to fix that. And Jesus comes to show you that he is trustworthy. That even if it takes long, his promises are always fulfilled. That it doesn't matter if it takes 1,700 years or 3,700 years if we count it today. God is always trustworthy because God is always faithful. Can you see what we can do without the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus is the king of faithfulness. The Gospel of Matthew also tells us that Jesus is the king who is not ashamed. Now, let me ask a personal question, okay? This is family, right? Yes? Let me ask you a personal question. How many of you have a relative that you would wish nobody would know about? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Another question. How many of you have that relative here with you today? <laughs> wow, some people actually raise their hand, people. That's... That's sad. <laughs> See, in ancient times, as I, as I mentioned before, your resume is your genealogy. 
See, in ancient times, they, they didn't use this thing of you listing your education and accomplishments and your experience to prove to people that you're worthy. They didn't do that. Back in those days, in ancient times, your resume was your genealogy because your family says a lot about you. So if you wanted to impress people, you would put all the amazing people in your genealogy and you would not include all the embarrassing family members. You wouldn't do that. You know what's amazing about this story, though? Jesus doesn't leave anyone out. In his genealogy, he includes anyone and everyone. So, for example, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, he shows us Abraham, Jacob, and Judah. Now, this is interesting. Abraham and Isaac, both of them struggle with lying. Both of them um, put their wives at risk to save themselves. Why would anybody put those people there? Jacob was a deceiver. Why would Jesus put him there? Judah was willing to sell his little brother into slavery. Why would Jesus put him there? It gets better, though, because in chapter 1, verse 3, we see the name of Tamar. And in verse 5, we see the name of Rahab. And then we see the name of Ruth. Now, for the most part, in ancient times, in that culture, in that time, no one would include women as part of the genealogy because for them, at that time, in that context, women were not worthy enough. And yet we have Jesus including women in her genealogy. But you got to ask the question, what kind of woman he's including in his genealogy? So Tamar was a woman that committed incest. Why would God put her there? Rahab was a prostitute? Why would God put her there? Rahab and Ruth, they were both Gentiles? In that context, in that setting, being a Gentile was almost not being a human being. Why would Jesus include them there? Now, if you don't think that's enough, this story gets better. Because in verse 6, it includes King David. But look at the description. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Don't you find that interesting? You know who that lady was? Bathsheba. That was Uriah's wife. But notice how the Gospel of Matthew does this amazing thing. He says, Jesus come from King Jesus, uh, King David. But then he says that he had a son, Solomon, with Uriah's wife. You know that story. You remember that King Jesus, instead of going to war with his people, the way a king would do it, he takes a chill day, a relaxing day. And as he's taking a, a cool time in the rooftop of the palace, he sees this beautiful woman, Uriah's wife. Now, this is crazy. Uriah was one of his most faithful army guys. 
Uriah had already risked his life for David before. And David doesn't care. He seduced her. And after he seduced her, he ordered for Uriah to be killed. Why would Jesus include this man in his genealogy? See, Matthew goes out of the way to show us that the victim there was Bathsheba, that the offender there was David. Why would Jesus include all these people there? This is what I think is happening. King Jesus came because he is not ashamed of his sinful people. See, Jesus came because even though every single one of those rejected him and didn't want anything to do with him, and that's why they did the things they did, he's not ashamed of calling them his people. The scholar Patrick Schreiner, he says, the family from where Jesus comes reveals the family for which Jesus comes. You know what that means? That it doesn't matter what you have done, what you do, or what you will do. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, your faith in Jesus, he will never feel ashamed of you. And that he comes to transform your shame into joy. Let me explain it even in a better way. I learned this from the pastor, theologian, and missionary, Jack Miller. In one of his books, he tells this story about this young girl that has a hard time understanding that God is her father and that he is for her, regardless of what she has done. So he says that this girl is sitting with a counselor. And she's expressing this thing that she has in her heart. And the girl understands and believes that part of the reason why she has a hard time embracing Jesus or God as a father is because of her past relationship with her dad, which was not a really good dad. And she tells this story about this one time in which she wanted to earn her father's approval. And as a five-year-old girl, she decides to wash one of her father's shirts, work shirts. And as a five-year-old girl, by mistake, she stains the shirt with something else, unintentionally. But she didn't notice. So when the father gets home, in her innocent pride, she goes to the father and says, Daddy, Daddy, look at what I did for you. I washed your shirt. The first thing the father does is he noticed the stain, and he was extremely harsh with her and pushed her away. And from that point on, that little girl had a hard time seeing God as a father that loved her. As the counselor is listening to this, she asked the question like a good counselor. If Jesus was your father, how do you think Jesus would, would, would react if you had stained his shirt? To which she responds, I think that he will forgive me. To what the counselor responds, I don't think you get it yet. Jesus not only will forgive you, but Jesus will wear that shirt to work and brag about you 
and show people how you washed his shirt for him. You know why would Jesus do that? Because he's not ashamed of you. You are the little girl. I am the little girl. Our king Jesus is a king that is not ashamed of his people. And he came to transform our shame into joy. And lastly, the Gospel of Matthew shows Jesus as the king of peace. Did you notice in number 14? Verse 17 says that there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. 14, 14, 14. That's six sevens. And the, Bible seven, and the number seven in the Bible always symbolizes fulfillment, completeness, rest, and peace. This is interesting. That Jesus in that genealogy is the seventh seven. Meaning that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate completeness, the ultimate rest, the ultimate peace. So Jesus is not just a king. Jesus is the king that come to give us the peace that we have been looking for. Now, today is a day in which we must celebrate communion. Do you know why is it that we celebrate communion? Because in communion, we remember who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and what Jesus gave, this transcendent peace that goes beyond understanding. Do you know why Jesus came for a new beginning? Because we were desperate people. Do you know why Jesus came to bring the good news? Because we are desperate people. Do you know why Jesus was faithful even to the point of going to the cross, stay at the cross, suffering for your sin, the consequences of your sin? Because he's not ashamed of you, nor your sin. Listen up, church. He hates your sin. But he's not ashamed of you. And if you have placed your faith in him, he wants to transform that shame into peace. This celebration communion is for believers. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. But if you're not a believer just yet, I'm going to ask you to just listen to what we have been saying and surrender your life to him. And then you can participate. See, in communion, we get to taste and see that God was so committed to us, so committed to a new beginning, so committed to faithfulness, so committed to the good news of the gospel, so committed to our peace, so committed to love, that he was willing to surrender all for us. Do you believe that? The Bible calls us that before participating in communion, we should take some time to examine our hearts. And I want to invite you to see where your heart is in your relationship with Jesus. And if there's anything that you need to repent of, just do it. And if you need to ask for forgiveness, do it. And if you need to accept forgiveness, do it. And then we will participate together. Let's take a few seconds there.
that we have peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. So you could go ahead and grab the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now let's remove the second cover of your cup. The Bible tells us that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, we want to thank you because you are the God of new beginnings. We want to thank you, Lord, because there is a life before Jesus and there is a life after Jesus. Lord, we want to thank you because we have in Jesus the king of the good news, not just the good advice. Lord, we want to thank you because in Jesus we have a faithful king. A king that is not ashamed of his people. We want to thank you, Lord, because in Jesus we have peace. Peace with you, peace with one another, and peace within. Lord, that I pray that just as these elements enter into our system, may everything we heard about Jesus enter into our souls. And it stays there. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus, and we all say...